Hey there, boils and ghouls. Welcome to this week's episode of Hollow Weekly. Nick here with special guest Julian David Stone, author of It's Alive. The premise of this book alone, like when you see it, you know it's Frankenstein. Right. There is something so gnarly about it being the days leading up to Frankenstein. Like, it might be because, like, I love movies and, like, pre-production seems like it's always half the battle. Mm -hmm. But, like, the countdown to the, the beginning of this movie is exhilarating. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, first of all. It's great great to be on here. Um, yeah, that's what, you know, as a writer, you're always looking to create tension. And when I discovered this, you know you know all it's historical fiction but it's based on fact that there was this back and forth leading up very close to the beginning of the production of Frankenstein that's where it became sort of irresistible to sort of build the tension and you know of what those last days must have been like to to portray it in a, in a book how did you um how did you come how did this book come about like when did you start to discover that oh leading up to this was quite chaotic well i had an interesting journey you know like a lot of people to these movies uh, as a kid i was a big fan of them mm -hmm. uh you know this was the 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 early 70s there was a big revival of them in the 60s and the 70s with the aurora model kits and all of that and i did all of that and then you know as i got older i moved into other things i discovered girls you know all the stuff that's <laughs> sort of as you get older and i i kind of left them behind and then in the late 90s I sort of started watching them again and I saw them completely differently, obviously, as an adult than I had seen them as a child. And I found them far more complex than I remembered and far more interesting. So I decided I wanted to look into the history of them. And I started doing that and I started reading about them and I found it really fascinating. And my first idea, you know, then it started to turn into like, okay, I, I was a screenwriter at the time and now, now I'm writing novels. Is there a story there that I can do something with? And my initial idea was I thought it was fascinating that you had this iconic character of Frankenstein, but there were all these different actors that played him. And I thought, okay, maybe there's an interesting story in that. And I started looking deeper and deeper. And then finally, when I started looking at the original Frankenstein and I discovered, one, this chaos that went on right up to the beginning of production, which happens in a lot of films, but mm -hmm. but it was so fascinating that you're talking about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, two such famous <laughs> yeah. people, and that, you know, had been forgotten that Bela Lugosi was almost Frankenstein, in fact, initially was supposed to be. And then the real aha moment was when I discovered Junior Lemley, that, who was running Universal at the time that this studio was being run by a 21 year old and he was the reason the films got made that nobody else in Hollywood wanted to go near these films mm -hmm. being Dracula and particularly Frankenstein and that's where I really locked in and that's where the story took off once I discovered him I was like you got to be kidding me that <laughs> you know and and you know th there was so much more that came out of that the farther I looked into it and he's such a fascinating character Junior Lemley as well as obviously Karloff and Lugosi. Was there anything, like, what was the research like? Did anything pop up that you didn't oh, know before? So, oh, so much. It was so f fun reading about the films. Um, I read everything I could get. I love contemporaneous history. I, I do, the most important thing to me, and what I spent most of my time on, was reading stuff from the period. That's what I really enjoy reading the trades from back and then. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, it's, it's just fascinating. And, you know, the one thing you learn it's almost like with anything like but particularly with the film business nothing is new you know all the cliches right. of hollywood were right. existed in 1931 that, that exist today and so it was fun just seeing those 
and a really big moment for me in the development of the book was, I, you know, things were going along, but the story wasn't quite coming together. And then I had this real aha moment where I went, you know what? I'm focusing too much on the Universal Monster films. I need to take a step back and really look at what Hollywood was in 1931. Right. So I pulled back and I, you know, at the time I was only concentrating and watching Universal films. I said, no, I need to see what every studio was making. And I read all the, uh, I read every, uh, all of the, f the magazines I could get from the period, like Photoplay and, you know, the movie star magazines. And I started with my, the, the novel takes place in August of 1931, but I started with January of 1931, and I read several different of these magazines all the way up and through that period of time, and it was so fascinating to watch stars rise and fall, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like they do today, and, and that just gave me a better feel about uh, what was going on then, and in particular, you're talking about a couple of years into the sound era. So that's mm. still a big debate. Like, they, you know, you can read stuff in early 1931 by then, people have accepted the, 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 the silent movie is gone, but you go back about a year, there's still people saying, oh, this is a fluke, you know, this <laughs> oh, sound no. thing's going to go away, you know. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's how quickly it was changing. In fact, you know, if you look at Dracula, um, Dwight Fry's makeup in several scenes still looks like silent movie makeup. You know, oh, so I want to go back and look yeah, at it. Yeah, take a look at it. He's got the eyeliner and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, you don't see that in Frankenstein, but Dracula still has touches just a little bit of a silent movie. And I believe, I, I've never found an account, uh, I've never been able to see an ad for this, but my, or, or, and I don't think it exists anymore, but my understanding is that Dracula was actually released as a silent film also. Whoa. Yeah, that it was still close enough to the era of silent films that they were, there were still theaters outside of the major cities that hadn't been equipped for sound yet. So when Dracula obviously is a sound film, but there was a cut made by Universal that was silent. That went around, and I, and I don't know if that's ever been shown, but that would be fascinating. We'll have to, to shake down the folks at Universal. And yeah, <laughs> tell us. Yeah, it's so wild to think about that. Of because, like, right now, I feel like at least what we were able to go, like have lived through it would be uh, like the digital uh, filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's and and that is that is radical in and out of itself because it's it's uh, made it a lot more accessible to to everyone else. It's crazy to think about how sound. Like the one pivotal oh. thing that we need of them be like, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> no way. It, it, you know, when and, and also what is really fascinating, because sound, you know, the jazz singers 1927 and everybody kind of looks at that as, you know, the first big sound hit. And that's certainly the one that really started the revolution. There have been a few little things before them, but that was the one where people went, OK, this, you know, we want more of this. But nobody knew at that point, what is a sound movie? Like, are they going to want sound effects and dialogue maybe they just want sound effects maybe they don't you know the the, oh, wow. the you know it's a, it's a whole evolution it's not just like oh okay sound film this is a sound film nobody really knew so for those first few years you have some fascinating hybrids where there may be no dialogue but occasionally they recorded you know music background music or even sound effects it's about 1932 33 where if you look at a film from that period Obviously, it looks like a very old film, right. but the relationship of sound to pictures is what we're used to. That's about when they sort of figure out, oh, okay, this is what it's going to be. But you go back in those in-between years, there's some really fascinating hybrids where they still just don't quite know what an audience is going to expect from a sound film. Oh, my God. 
like they were literally just trying to create this brand new art form. Oh, com- completely, completely. In fact, this is sort of a tangent, but um, I went to the Turner Classic Movie Festival. I don't know if you've ever been to that. It's a wonderful oh, film festival. That sounds fun. Yeah, it's out here in Hollywood. They do it uh, every year, and I ended up in line with. Um, uh, uh, waiting for a movie with one of the guys that's terrible. I think it's Craig Barron who won an Academy Award for Star Wars and he would, uh, for sound for sound effects, cool. and he would always do presentations there. And I said, I have a question for you. How did they edit sound back then? Because this is when they were recording on discs. How was the editing done? And he said, I'll tell you the truth, there's some aspects of it that we still don't know exactly how they did it. Even even though it's a relatively wow. modern age and the, and the, the technology... Um, you know, was evolving so quickly, but just the thought that, you know, that's how crazy it was in those early days. There were competing systems for doing sound films, and some of it has actually been lost. Wow. The one thing that I that I think about sometimes, because, like, I only worked in the industry very rarely, but, like, I always imagined, like, whenever we would have a shoot on some ranch off, like, a beaten path with no GPS, I'm like, let, let, that sucks alone, showing up to set with no GPS, let alone try to figure out how do we edit sound. <laughs> like, their <laughs> challenges were up, were up here. <laughs> well, I, I started working in the film business really in the 80s and the early 90s, and I can tell you some of the stories then <laughs> of finding locations and, like, putting signs up. You know, I, I produced this film that we shot in the in the desert, um, sort of outside of uh, Victorville. And it was a mess. People would miss the sign. Oh, my God. And then they just keep going. <laughs> and you're, they're just driving for hours into the desert, you know. And, and you know, there's no cell phone to call up. And, you oh, know, my God. Yeah. So we, we yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of memories around that. Jeez, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, pulled, you pulled through. Uh, so when you were doing the research, mm-hmm. you said you watched a lot of movies. Did you, did you run into, like, any real underrated gems? Like, any oh, movies? So many, you know, what's also fun of this period that that my book takes place in Frankenstein is it's the pre-code era. So I don't know how how much, you know, your listeners are, you know, there was this period when sound comes in in 28 until 1934, where there was really no limits on what you could put on the screen. And, And in fact, things got, you know, by by the standards of today, the stuff is pretty mild, but mm-hmm. at the time, it sort of got a little bit more and more outrageous, and finally they instituted a code in 1934 which limited all kinds of stuff you could do on screen, mm-hmm. and that stayed in place until about the mid-60s where people started to sort of ignore it and, and stuff. So seeing that was a lot of fun. You know, the, there, cool. there was a lot of sort of outrageous behavior, you know, a lot of drinking, a lot of sexual stuff that you mm-hmm. didn't expect. Um, yeah, th- there there was one film in particular that I love. We, we were, you know, we were talking just before I believe we went on the air. You know about how the cliches of the film business don't change. There's a film from either 1929 or 1930 called Showgirl in Hollywood, and it's about a showgirl from New York who gets you know invited to come to Hollywood to have this big career, and. Every cliche of the film business is in it. The casting couch, <laughs> oh, no. you know, you're you're too old. Everything you can imagine is in is in this film, and and that was one of the ones that I discovered that was really fun to watch, just to see how nothing's changed. Damn, tale yeah. as old as time. Yep. It's in and in, in the book. There's so many like stories that, um, like like the one thing that I that I wrote there was um, oh where where did I put it? Of of. People losing sight of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like I really felt that with with Carl and with Bella, they both had this image of something they were wanting to to hold on to. They couldn't mm-hmm. let it go. 
and if they did, well, I, well, Carl did very last minute before Junior almost ran him over with the, <laughs> with the bulldozer. <laughs> you know, but Bella was a little, was a day late, and I thought that story is is so interesting because everybody everybody has that, and I feel like that's a a, a cliche in life that everyone mm-hmm. like, I, and I felt that way too artistically. Like you know, you you, you a couple of years passed, you're like, well, why didn't haven't I done this one thing? And then you kind of like have to regain yourself. Carl eventually, luckily, did last minute. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein went in, but I, I I thought the way that you told those stories through the players in this book was was awesome. Oh well, thank you. Um, that's something you know, like you said, that is very prevalent in life, and it's something I can relate to too. I had a career in my twenties as a screenwriter, and yeah, it's very easy to get caught up in in you know, as I sort of like to say to people when you're when you're. 27 and they're telling you you're a genius it's very easy to believe them right you know so that that's you know that's kind of what i was you know that you with particularly with uh, lugosi that really the peak of his entire career is right after dracula he becomes a big star and he'll never be quite as big a star again and his turning down frankenstein some people believe was, you know, sort of the beginning of the the decline. Not that he didn't make tons of amazing right. films, but he was never quite, you know, as big a star as he was again after Dracula. Everybody knew who he was, but he wasn't getting offered the material that he deserved. Right. I'm really interested in, in your, your history as a screenwriter. How did that start out? You know, uh, I, I, well, you know, again, I think we were chatting. Oh, no, we said this earlier in this. You know, I, I wanted to make films. And I started making films and I, I went to film school and, you know, my last year I made a I made a big film that got me a lot of attention and I signed with an agent and you sort of have this fantasy you're going to sign with an agent and they're going to hand you, you know, at that time, a $50 million movie, you know, mm-hmm. and you're going to go off and have a career. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. You have to, for some people it does, but <laughs> most it doesn't. You have to start producing material and... You know, which was ironic because when I did start, I was like, well, I'm interested in everything but screenwriting. Right. And of course, that turned out to be my first big break. Um, I wrote seven really bad scripts. My eighth one was the first time that I wrote something that came from my life, which is I wrote a, a script about the Brooklyn Dodgers in New York. So it was Jews and baseball. You know, it was basically the, the, <laughs> the world that, you know, I, I had grown up with. And literally, my you know, my life changed overnight. I literally... You know, suddenly my agent sent it out. There was a bidding war, a fight, all this craziness went on. And I ended up getting a three picture deal to write for Disney out of it. Cool. And that was the beginning of my screenwriting career. And then it kind of, you know, I had a nice run for about 10 or 15 years. And then, you know, uh, it's a, uh, some of it was disenchantment. Some of it was you get older and, you know, mm-hmm. there, somebody else becomes the young, you know, hot kid, you know, and, <laughs> and right. it's harder to get meetings and, you know, all the stuff that happens. And so I transitioned into novels. And uh, I also, <laughs> in, in being honest, I didn't entirely learn the lesson that I should have with the success of that screenplay, which was writing something that was personal, that was unique. After that, I reverted back to trying to write commercial stuff and it wasn't as good to be honest with you and it didn't intrigue people as much because there was a million people writing the same type of stuff where when you write something that's more unique and personal it you know it excites people because it's the only one like it that was carl limley right there i I just (laughs) i just saw i saw that last little that last little monologue there was something really cool um in in the beginning of the book that um i wrote down and it was uh somebody asked junior uh, if he sees himself in the monster, mm-hmm. 
Do you, do you think like from like the research and everything you know put, throwing the book together? Do you think that he saw that as well or felt that? Well, it's it's really fascinating because I'm I'm obsessed with him because he's been kind of forgotten and and I just as a side note, one of the really great things is that since this book has come out. I've had contact with so many of his relatives because they're no way. yeah, and it's been so fun hearing stories about him because the Lemleys lose Universal in 1936, and uh, Junior lives another 40 years, but has nothing to do with the film business anymore. Carl, the the father, dies a, a couple of years later, so you know it's been great hearing from them. Just what was he doing for those 40 years? And they right. all they all say wonderful things about him, uh, and. From that, you know, you and from my research, you can kind of put together as best. I'm still trying to figure him out entirely, but <laughs> you know, I, I he definitely had a connection to the type of material which I talk about in the story with the flashback. Yes, and that's that's all real, and that's also based on interviews that right around the time, you know, I don't want to give away the plot thing right. that happens <laughs> in that flashback, but that's that's all real, and that was the point that he sort of took a turn and became interested in sort of the occult and darker oh. stuff. So he definitely had a connection there, and he did feel a draw to Dracula and Frankenstein. I mean, that is uh, absolutely true that he was the one that wanted to make these films, and he's the one that were you know that fought for him. Were lucky, you know, they wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. You know, these these mm -hmm. films that we love and this cycle that started with them are because of him. Um, and in terms of the personal story, I I do you know one of the things that attracted me as a writer when you think about Frankenstein. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's a father and son story. It's a creator who's not happy with his creation. Well, what's the relationship between Carl Lemley Sr. and Carl <laughs> Lemley Jr.? He's not happy with his, his son or his creation, and he doesn't like what he's doing with his studio. So that was, you know, that was real, and that was something I felt to put into the story. It, it it was it was that translated very well into in, into the book. Like it, even, I, there was a point in time, and I will I will spoil the end. But you know, where there's a conversation, I got a little misty. I got a little misty, and I'll tell you why. This this might seem really weird, but there was mm -hmm. two movies that I kept thinking of while listening to this book because there's a there's a thing uh, in this book where uh, you almost kind of have to surrender to the flow of life. Like there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that are gonna happen. And I forget who, what the quote is. I was I was asking my fiance before, so I was like, "Who is this? Was it Oprah?" Because I always say every quote. I feel like every quote is an Oprah quote. Or if it's not, you can just give it to her. And everyone's like, "That makes a lot of sense." But there's uh, this quote about life won't present the opportunity until you're ready for it. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of that with Junior. Like there was mm -hmm. a lot of things happening, and he was making the right choices at the very right time to mm -hmm. to you know surrender to that flow and to be able to make Frankenstein into, into into what it is. But there was two there was two movies that came to mind. I'm curious to see as a film lover what you think. Sure. I saw the the there was a little bit of Slumdog Millionaire and Father of the Bride, which I, which is weird. <laughs> I know it's so weird. But that 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 whole like you lose yourself. You know Father of mm -hmm. the Bride, they you know they realize, hey, we were young crazy kids at one point yeah. in time too. Yeah. I saw a little bit of that and then the also the ending of Slumdog Millionaire, the it is written. Like everything mm -hmm. is already written that's gonna happen. I right. felt like that happened with these these cats oh, that's interesting and universal and it, it, it just it was, it was kind of like listening to it was kind of spiritual in a way oh well, uh, thank you other people have said that about getting misty-eyed and i'm very happy about that because that you know obviously i i dedicated the film to my father you know so it it very much that father-son relationship 
is kind of the center of it, like I said, because of the parallel in Frankenstein and also with Carl Sr. and Jr. Um, one of the things that I really liked was the framing of this book. It was the, it was the you know, five days mm-hmm. until production. How did you come up with that? I, did it just come naturally? or it's Again, it's something you're, you're always looking to create tension as a writer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of having almost a countdown. And, it, and it's part of the story, you know, that was unique about it was that there, you know, one, films in general tend to be that very chaotic. My, my, my wife works in uh, sitcoms primarily. She's a costumer and she does a lot of pilots and they are swapping actors out, you know, <laughs> right up until the last minute. And so, you know, sometimes you're talking about somebody who signs on the day before and the show runs for seven years, you know, <laughs> and, and they were not, you know, two days before they were shooting it, they weren't that. So it's part of the film business and, and it was part of the appeal to me that there was this back and forth and that is based on fact. Um, the first, in, and it's in the book, all, all of the quotes in the book, like you were talking about the countdown and I have mm-hmm. quotes, uh, uh, those are all real. You know, it is historical oh, so fiction, cool. but every one of those quotes are real and the very first time Boris Karloff is ever mentioned anywhere in relation to the film Frankenstein is the first day of production. There's one line in a small Los Angeles paper that says Boris Karloff has been signed to play the role of the monster in Universal's Frankenstein. So that's, you know, there's nothing about it until the first day of production. So wow. that that's kind of when I discovered all of that. And then, you know, the other quotes where, you know, it's six months before, eight months before, Bela Lugosi will be playing the role, you know. <laughs> Bela, then three months out, Bela Lugosi has quit Frankenstein. And then the the one that sort of sets everything off is that, you know, Lugosi is now off the picture, but then there's this very famous letter, and again, I quote it in the book, that James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, um, sends to Colin Clive, who plays the doc, plays Dr. Frankenstein in the movie. Um, Clive comes over from London on a boat, and uh, it's about two weeks before the beginning of production uh, of Frankenstein, and Colin Clive arrives in New York off of a boat from London, and the script is waiting for him there with a letter from James Whale. And in the letter... Um, James Whale says, and playing the role of the monster will, will be either Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff. So here it is two <laughs> weeks before, and this is a fact, in the letter from the director, we still don't know who's going to play this role. <laughs> so welcome to Hollywood. You hear so many behind-the-scenes stories of filmmakers like and that i kind of miss dvd extra uh, special yeah because i feel like a lot of times when you watch those you would hear stories like that oh, yeah. of like you know the day before you know someone dropped out or the money drops out mm-hmm. or, or something like that and and the way you illustrate like chaos of pre-production and I, i'll say this i feel like pre-production is almost I, I, I might get crucified. This. I feel like I feel like pre-production is almost the more important skill. Like, because once everything gets rolling, yeah, everything's rolling. That pre-production is like the hardest battle ever. The money, the actors, the contracts. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting everything in place. That is chaotic. No question. You know, it, it's funny. We were before we started recording. We were talking about Hitchcock, and he was very famous about saying that too. That when when he had finished the storyboards, in his mind, the film was done. You know, and that's right. all part of the pre-production. It was now, it was almost a letdown. Like, it was never <laughs> it was never as good as what he had in his mind, you know, from that. So, no, it's true. I mean, it's those decisions you make. And, you know, after that, you, you sort of begin shooting and you have this vision of the film and then it's just subtraction from there, <laughs> yes. you know, because you know what you're starting with and then you have to start, you know, you get behind schedule, you run out of money, you know, you, you have to start making changes and cut things. Um, 
How many times? Okay, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you watched Frankenstein? I, I don't remember the literal, but I know that it the the first time would have been in the early seventies on television. You know, there was like a lot of people. I, uh, there was a local. Uh, we had I was in, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the the horror thing was Creature Features, which was shown every Friday and Saturday night at eleven thirty. And you know, I couldn't wait for that to see what <laughs> what it was. And at some point, they showed Frankenstein, and I had another buddy then who was obsessed with these films and. You know, we were building the model kits and talking about it, but you couldn't just pop in the the, the DVD or stream it or anything mm-hmm. then. So you had to wait for them to show up. So it was sometime during then that I first saw it. Um, writing the book, do you view the film any differently? Like, does it? Because I because I'll be honest, I mm-hmm. I view uh, Karloff a little differently, and, and all in a great. I don't view anyone badly from mm-hmm. the movie, but like th- this really like I don't know. It made me just really want to hug Boris Karloff. Like, he just seemed like such a jovial person. <laughs> he, he was. You know, that's an, that's an interesting question. It, it hasn't changed my perception of the film, but it has made me like all of the people involved more, just reading more about them. You know, they're all heroes to me. The, you know, the three main characters are Junior Lemley, Boris Karloff, and Bela Lugosi. And the more I read about them, the more incredible I found them. You know, mm-hmm. they and and you know what also excited me about writing this was all of their lives are completely changed coming out of this film. Right. You know, Karloff obviously overnight becomes a huge star. Lugosi is never quite the same mm-hmm. star that he. You know, Karloff kind of takes a little bit of the the space that Universal was kind of you know wanted to push him into, and Junior. You know, this was kind of his biggest triumph. He had other films at the time that may have gotten more acclaim, but not 90 years later. You know? <laughs> right. You know, uh, so, you know, that that's kind of what doing the research, what came out of it to me was just how much I, I appreciated what they had done. You know, as you were saying, like Karloff had this 25 year career of being just a struggling actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lugosi is amazing because he basically found a way two or three other times in his career to become an incredibly successful actor. First, he starts in Hungary, then he and he is, he's successful at a very young age, then he's in Germany, and he becomes very successful at a very young age, then he comes to America and does it all over again. And, you know, as somebody, we were talking about my early days in the film business, I had a ton of friends who were actors, and, you know, it's you're lucky if you make it once, let alone three times. <laughs> right. And, and twice, Bella did it in not even his native language. Right. So it just, all of that just made me admire him that much more. And like I said, Karloff, how... He just continued to work at it and work at it and how jovial he was. And, you know, I say this all the time, but I really believe this. His performance in Frankenstein, I think, is one of the greatest performances you will ever see. I do not see him in it. When you look at the character, like you said, the sort of jovial sort of Englishman, there is none of him in that character of Frankenstein. It is just the greatest melding of, of you know, of, of a character and an actor. It's just phenomenal. So I recently became obsessed um mostly because of the did you see the ethan hawk documentary that he did the last movie stars no the paul newman yeah the paul newman no. one oh highly recommend it. oh I'll definitely it, it check is it, out. it is so amazing but um i don't know anything about acting right and so when you watch <laughs> something you know with paul newman and, and joanne woodward like you're gonna you're gonna learn a thing or two yeah. <laughs> about the art of acting and the one thing they kept saying that i thought helped me understand what acting is you know, is they kept saying what they were pulling from. Like, they were like, from this performance, I was pulling from, you know, a principal I had in high school mm-hmm. or, or that. And I, that concept was 
like wild to me. I was like, oh my god, I never thought about that. Yeah. I thought you know you look at a script, you read it, you come up with the character. You know, director gives you some motivation and that's it. But like for the actor, it's mm-hmm. you know, there's way deeper than that. Like you're you're pulling from that. And when you talk about Karloff and like you know him being able to pull out you know his his bridge to mm-hmm. you know that, and it was during I think the screen test where he said I gave it my all or like he, he was talking about like all the like the things in his life and I was like oh shit that's what he's pulling from like that's what mm-hmm. he's pulling from so that performance and and that's what I was uh, sort of wanted to get earlier was I I kind of want to go back and watch Frankenstein now now that I, I can see like where he's pulling from one because I learned what pulling from was but two where he got it if from mm-hmm. from the book and just view that character and I think it's gonna make it a lot more heartbreaking it, it's true I mean that's kind of why it was you know, it was such a success that he put it all out there. You know, he allowed himself, he's playing a monster, but he's so sympathetic and he's so vulnerable. You know, mm-hmm. he's, you know, like any child that is brought into the world, they didn't ask to be brought into the world. And that's, <laughs> right. that's what, you know, the monster is. And, you know, that's, that's the brilliance of the film and why it's still, you know, it's not just to think about, oh, here's this horrible creature. Now let's kill it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's your, it's the vulnerability and, you know how he portrays it that is so remarkable and why audiences still relate to it to you know today do, um do you think there's any other portrayal of the monster that comes close because like we we rewatched uh uh the uh, what's his name uh the frank the robert de niro frankenstein one mm-hmm. and we've seen a handful of others but something about that is, is ice cold Nothing can oh, come close no, to it n- nothing it's it's lightning in a bottle you mm-hmm. know you, no there there's nothing that comes close now to me, my personal favorite other version of the story is the 1974 TV movie, if you've ever seen that. I've not seen that it's, one, it's, it's fascinating because it's the book. You know, if, if you've ever read the book of Frankenstein, the, as much as we love the movie Frankenstein, it's got nothing to do with the book. I mean, it's got the title and the basic <laughs> right. you know, premise, but no, the, the, this is a very literal adaptation of the book. Gotcha. And so I recommend that one for that. But in terms of what is people think of with Frankenstein, there's nothing that comes close. And, you know, I enjoyed all the other actors. Like I said, you know, my initial draw to it was that all these other actors had played the character, but nobody comes close. You know, it's fun in the cycle to watch, you know, when Bela Lugosi plays it or when Glenn Strange, you know, that that's all fun and still feels connected to the Karloff performance. But then when you get to the De Niro thing, that's just a whole other, you know, yeah, I just thing. It's just him getting dragged around, yeah, uh, fluid naked. <laughs> yeah, for, you know for the, a while. The, that. You know every every you know every work of art, particularly when it's later, you know, or or is based on other material or a subject matter that's been explored. They have to find a reason, sort of, for it to exist. So their creation scene, you know, the one in Frankenstein is incredible, but it's a fairly you know it's not bloody and right. gutty. It's just very dramatic and wonderful. So their their decision was, well, let's go this way and make it sloppy and they're slipping and you know mm-hmm. and all that stuff which is an interesting interpretation i just you know i like the original <laughs> <laughs> yes it's pretty good yeah i love how um it's i want i want to say i want i'm going to title it this but i don't think it's it's the Karloff versus Lugosi. Mm-hmm. they're they're fighting each other, but they're not they're yeah. just happening happening to be in the same space for right it. and what i thought was really interesting is you know, I'll I'll be honest, I'll lay it on the line. If I if if I had to say which actor I'd prefer to see, I think I think Karloff is a little bit of a better actor. I always mm-hmm. like watching him. Nothing, I but I love Lugosi. Um, but during the book, it felt like Bella had this really big ego because he didn't want to cover his face mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. And 
you know, knowing how history played out, you're kind of like, oh, what a jerk. You know, he could have just did it and, and, and been happy. But as the book went on, I didn't see his ego as this thing that made him a jerk. I, I saw it and it made me really sad for him a little mm-hmm. bit that like he he held on to the, like i i don't want to be covered in makeup you know i'm not lon, mm-hmm. lon cheney you know i i want the world he kept you know saying i want them to see my face right and i thought there was something really sad about it uh how did how did that like do you do you feel sad for him or uh, well, how, what are your feelings you about know it? that's kind of the conventional wisdom on him that's not i mean there's some truth and there's some that's not certainly through the 30s he's continued to do wonderful films mm-hmm. and big films, a lot of them with Karloff, as, as we all know. Um, they were paired together many times. Um, I think there, but, but there is an element of it, um, you know, but I sort of looked at it more that I understood why he felt that way, that like, I, you know, I'm saying he fought so hard to succeed and then right. to imagine, you know, you become this big star and they want to put you in a film and cover your face <laughs> and you yeah. don't talk. You know, yeah. so uh, you right can, as these talkies are coming in. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, like people are saying, oh, you'll never make the transition, you know, and then he becomes a star in Dracula, a sound film. And then the first thing they want to do is sort of take his face and his voice away. So mm-hmm. I, I felt sort of sympathetic to it more than anything. Did you um, see any of yourself uh, to go back to uh, to Junior? Mm-hmm. Did you see any of yourself in Junior? Because the way he's oh. written, it's, it feels <laughs> what, like this. I'm going to. What 1000 percent. Like I said, I, I had success at a, you know, in the film business, a, a measure of it at a relatively young age. So, you you know, I remember how, frankly, full of myself I was then and. But but it was also exciting because you think you can do no wrong, you know, right. and that's kind of what Junior was thinking, <laughs> and and it was fun. So yeah, oh absolutely, you know, there there there's nothing better than you know having success early in life when you have sort of no constraints, you know, you have no mm-hmm. responsibilities, you don't have a family, you know, you're making more money than you ever imagined you would make, you know, I um I I, I won't give numbers here, but when I, the first project that I did for Disney, they were apologizing to me because they were sending me on a research trip and you know it was in my perspective a crazy amount of money <laughs> that they were giving me per day as a per diem and they were like apologetic about this is all we can give and i'm like you know and they're, you they're gotta so, lie that's fine i don't make do yeah you know do. they sent me to new york first class i'd never flown first class before oh you gosh. know you know and this is 1991 when first class was really first class on an airplane <laughs> basically and, a small apartment <laughs> yeah yeah and and yeah exactly and you know they're they're very apologetic about it so uh yeah no i felt definitely felt a connection to junior and in, in his youth and excitement about films um there was a line that it was one of those where like i had like paused the book and like write it down i really loved it because it was a great insight into how junior thought and it was when he's at one of the premieres and sydney uh, comes up to him and she's like oh you said yeah he doesn't he doesn't go to the um the the event with her mm-hmm. and he could, he does the typical producer. I'm going to brush you off and I'll see you in the morning <laughs> right. thing, and then I'll come up with whatever. Yeah. But she's like, uh, you know, mentions how it's tomorrow. And he, the line is tomorrow is a million years away. Yeah. And I love that line. That was because to me, like he, he didn't just say that, like he believed that. Yeah, it, you know, and particularly at that moment in the story, he's juggling so many things. He's like, "I'll get to tomorrow when I get it. when it when it comes. I got to solve all these other problems." Yeah. The battle that. Um, junior goes through in the book um i think is is a great one it is this do i continue the legacy uh take the promotion from my father or do i 
break off from that? Mm-hmm. Do I do I get into this? You know, almost I feel like Pink Floyd would sing about it. You get into this, you know, you ten years, you look behind, you know, that kind yeah. of like. Does he go that path, follow his father, or does he do the radical thing and like sort of follow his heart and his and his ideas? Yeah. And the way you set that up and that tension between the two of them was so intriguing. Oh well, thank you. That that was another moment in the development of the story. Just another part that wasn't working. And then when I really sort of built it around that decision that he has to get what he wants, but to get it, there's a sacrifice. And, you know, have you felt any, uh, any of those sacrifices in your creative career? Uh, not so much sacrifice sacrifices more as just bad choices. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I, I, I got success with a particular type of material instead of, looking at that material and going, wow, that's what they reacted to. I mean, I, I cannot tell you the difference it was, you know, again, I don't want to overstate this, but, you know, I, I was getting getting nowhere. And then suddenly overnight, I was taking meetings at every studio in town. They just freaked out over this script I, I, I wrote. And instead of going, wow, look, you did something different. Look what it did. I just went back to, I, I wanted to chase the success instead of the quality that was in that script. That was I learned the wrong lesson. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember the moment where it, like it clicked and you were like, oh, son of a bitch? <laughs> that, I made, I... I've done the yeah. It was probably about ten years ago. <laughs> it took about twenty years to. It was when I started writing novels because the novels have had much stronger reaction. Because when when I went when I continued writing screenplays, I was still the most important thought was is it commercial? Is it commercial? And when I started right. writing novels, I didn't have to worry about that. I wasn't writing, you know, or when I did studio assignments, you know, you're dealing with input from so many different people and very little of it is what you want to write ultimately. And so once I, I that was when it really clicked in and I, I wrote my first novel about, I guess it's almost 15 years ago now, 12, 12 or 13 years ago. And the response to it and the same way that I enjoyed writing it, I realized I just wrote what I was passionate about and it was a right. whole different reception to most of my screenplays after that first one that got me all that work. <laughs> was there, um, what was the transition, the transition like from screenplays to novels? Was there any sort of learning curve or like what did there, you- there, there was, I had done before the first one that I completed about eight or nine years before that, I had sort of stopped writing screenplays and taken a first crack at writing a novel. And I learned a lot from that. And I, I need to go back to that one, but I never really like, I sort of finished a couple of drafts of the manuscript and kind of abandoned it and went back to screenplays for a number of years. And instead of going back and finishing that one up, I started something new. But I learned a lot about that. There was definitely, you know, a learning curve. I used to um, lecture a lot on screenwriting. I had various friends who became professors uh, after we went to film school together. And I would always go out and talk about screenwriting. And one of the biggest bits of advice, and I'm just giving it as what worked for me, is that I don't believe in rewriting the same script over and over again for 10 years. I think you need to write it, get notes, rewrite it, and then send it out into the world and either it works or it doesn't, then move on to the next one because I don't think you can learn the lesson until you move on to the next one. That's a great lesson. Yeah, that's that worked for me personally because I knew people that kept working on the same screenplay for four or five years and it wasn't getting better. And you look at them and you're like, "Come on, man! Like, yeah. set it, and forget it, just, just yeah. move on." There was a um, God, I forget what the book is, but it was about like how creative ideas have a shelf life, mm-hmm. and it's like you know you don't you don't keep expired milk in the fridge. <laughs> you know, you're like, right, yeah. we got to get rid of it, throw yeah. it, throw it something new. Um, I really liked um, comparing 
uh, Bella to uh, Carl. I thought they both sort of had this same uh, sort of journey of they wanted to hold on to this thing. They wanted to hold mm-hmm. on to this thing. Uh, do you see any similarities like between the two of them? Like That's interesting. I, I never really thought. I mean, they, they were both uh, certainly in both of their Bella and Carl Lemley Sr. Both of them, you could say English wasn't their first language, even though. Carl Sr. had been here a lo- much longer than uh, than Bella. I didn't really draw a parallel. I, you know, like all of them, I, 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 of of all of the characters, I will say this in the story that are kind of major characters. Carl Emily Sr. in a lot of ways was the hardest one for me to completely understand. Like I understood Junior and I understood Boris and Bella because if you look at and and, and because Carl Emily Sr. is you know, we were again talking about this earlier, is one of several many moguls at the time. But all of those other guys had a very similar story. They were kind of like struggling. You know, they had they had to fight their way up from the street. Carl Lemley Sr. at every step of his life was comfortable. He was comfortable in Germany. He was sort of middle class, but chose to come to America. He came to America. He ends up in, in uh, I believe, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He's kind of a pillar of the community. He's working in a successful store in his early 40s and yet decides, no, I want something. Like, I... I he, he he constantly seems to be looking for something, but he's always succeeding. Where a lot of these other moguls, you know, I, I think Ray Cohn sold sheet music on the street. I mean, people, you know, <laughs> these were not guys that had sort of the 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 success that that Carl Lemley Sr. had. So I always found that fascinating that I never entirely got what drove him, and he was. He was a monster. I mean, any of those guys that you know they created this industry, and I, and I love telling this story that you know Carl uh, founded Universal Studios, and he uh, opens it with huge fanfare in 1915. You know when the first tour starts of Universal Studios in 1915. Like he immediately said, yeah, he just immediately saw everything you could do in 1915 when Universal Studios opens on the same spot it's on today. You could take a bus from Hollywood Boulevard to the studio and for 25 cents you could watch them they built grandstands which i talk about in the book and it was silent stages then and they were lined up and you sat up there and watched them make movies so he he had this vision of of how to exploit every aspect of filmmaking but i still don't know what drove him because he always succeeded he was always comfortable yet he kept wanting more in a, in a weird way but but I don't know why, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't I need more because I'm afraid I'll end up on the street because he never really was on that. Like, it, it's right. just fascinating to me. Just like a unicorn of a man, just like wandering through life. <laughs> just just fascinating. And, and you you read, you know, he had a great reputation. Everybody called him Uncle Carl. And he was famous for hiring lots of family members, you know, um, where the stories of the other guys of how tough they were and how much they were SOBs are very famous you never hear that in relation to Carl Lemley Sr. And yet he took on Edison, you know, who had a patent on filmmaking and beat him at that. So he was tough, but he, he just didn't have the sort of the real, the, there just aren't the stories that you hear about the other guys. You I know? loved, I loved the part of the book talking about his uh, train ride out mm-hmm. here and him go him reading through court cases with edit like th- mm-hmm. that line reading about court cases with edison just flipping through mm-hmm. like for like the future of film mm-hmm. like it, it, it's it always blows my mind just like how 
we're not that far removed from the invention of all this. Oh, no, not at all. It, it, it is astounding how relatively new in art it is, you know, and how, and how quickly it went from not existing to being the preeminent art form, you know, this mm -hmm. mass communication that nobody had ever seen before on that scale and even like the resilience of it like with all the theaters you know like there's still a couple arc lights that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that that are opening back up but like all the other movie theaters around like when they were died out covid came nobody was seeing theaters it's instantly packed again mm -hmm. like people just absolutely love these movies yeah and i i, I don't think i'll ever get tired of hearing about this like these years of hollywood it's just fascinating as they're trying to figure this thing out you know and and it was a time you know, where they're, they were obviously in a lot of ways making even more money than today because they weren't taxed. And, you know, <laughs> there, there's all, it, it, it's just, uh, it, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's quite an era. <laughs> the, the one thing that I never thought about when it came to these old movies is um, the uh, distributors or the, the studios paying people to freak out in a the theater. Mm -hmm. For some reason, that never crossed my mind, even though I was like, oh my God, that's where Roger Corman probably <laughs> got oh, all that. that. And that was the one thing that Carl, you know, when I talk about the difference between Carl Emily Sr. and Jr., his son Sr. was very famous for those stunts. Mm -hmm. That was kind of his bread and butter. And uh, I don't know if I go too far into this in, in the book, but he really is credited with really creating the first movie star because in 1912, there was a... a uh, the, up until then, um, actors were just known as like the Biograph girl, meaning she worked for Biograph films and they, they weren't known as names. He famously got a, uh, a, a well-known actor away from another studio, uh, lured, her, lured her away with money, money. Her name was Florence Lawrence. And he staged this whole crazy thing that was completely made up that a, he put out a rumor that she had died. <laughs> and there was this whole uproar that she was dead just so that they could then say, no, 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 it's not true. In fact, she's going to make an appearance in St. Louis, you know, to prove that she's still alive. And sure enough, Florence Lawrence shows up in St. Louis and is the, the train when she arrives is greeted with tens of thousands of people. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that's kind of the that was the beginning of the movie star era where he went, wow, OK, we need to market these people, not just as the biograph girl or this and that. And that's sort of credited with the beginning of the movie of movie stars. His mind is fascinating yeah. because there's part of it where, you know, you, you, the first thing I think of when you think of like cheap theater gimmicks is you think they're just that cheap. Theater yeah. gimmicks. You think of, you know, House uh, House on Haunted Hill with the skeleton swings right. the theater, something mm -hmm. like that. But it, that was my first stop. But after I sat with it, I was like, well, why not fuck with the audience? Yeah. You're messing with them on the screen. None of that's yeah, real. That's a good point. So yeah. why not do, why not bring that nonsense into the theater? It's spooky before. Like, like to me, it's just like pure showman. Like yeah. he was like, no, even, even when you're sitting in the theater, you're not yeah. safe. Like I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to entertain you. I'm going to get your, you know, four cents or whatever movie costs, yep. <laughs> costs back then. However I can through pure entertainment well why not have fun with it you know yes. that, that's it just it, it seemed th that was the one thing you will also see with the lemleys with both where senior and junior had in common they loved to throw a party they you can read it in accounts at the time they were known for that and that's the one thing like i said the relatives of junior who reached out to me you know once the the book came out um, that's the one thing that came up. They always talked about his parties over, you know, after he left the business, he can, well, I guess he was still technically somewhat connected, um, but he just had wonderful parties. He was famous for that. I would love to go to one of those parties. Oh, I, I cannot tell you, like, I would give anything. And what was really fun in the research was 
I'd be reading um, somebody else's biography or autobiography and suddenly the Lemleys would pop up and it was always exciting. And there was a book written by um, the writer who wrote, uh, oh God, this is terrible, um, what, Bud Schulberg. Uh, who wrote What Makes Sammy Run, and he wrote uh, um, uh, uh, On the Waterfront, big, big screenwriter. Gotcha. And his father had been, he grew up around the film business. His father had been an executive at Paramount, and he put out a book, I don't know how many years ago, just it was a, a, a autobiography of just his experiences growing up in Hollywood. And all of us, you know, having read the book, you can imagine my reaction when I got this. All of a sudden, he talks about, going to a party at the Lemley's house. And I just forget, but it, but it gets better if you remember this. Guess who he went, and this is in reality, guess who he goes to the party with? And this is real. Sydney Fox, who's a, if you remember, that's the actress that the junior oh. in my book. So I couldn't believe this. Wow. Is, yeah, this is real. This isn't just my, I was like, oh my God, I like this is the kind of thing that like you could do research for a thousand years and never find. And here it is, him telling a story of going to a party at the Lemley's with Sydney Fox, who was, you, character in my book you discover that like junior discovers the test footage yeah we got something big here yeah yeah i couldn't believe that when i found that in his autobiography that he had you know this is a real moment from 1929 or i guess it would have been 32 or something when he went to this party that is so awesome the um there, there there's there was two countdown uh like framings in the book one was mm -hmm. the, the production mm -hmm. the other one was how much money karloff had in his pocket <laughs> and I really, really love that because because the less money he had, the more mm -hmm. I got. I mean, I know, I you know, you know, he's gonna lay Frankenstein, but still, like you're you're just living with him in that moment. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't know anything could change last minute. So when he's like, uh, uh, when he buys the cigar and he uses up his like last dollar, mm -hmm. I love the fact that he doesn't actually start living until he has no money. Mm -hmm. Like once he hits zero dollars, he splurges <laughs> on a twenty five cent cigar, and then he's just look at the penny, enjoying life. Yeah, I, I I thought that was so amazing, and. and, oh. and I don't know. It just there's. It, it keep, I keep tying it back into this like surrendering to life aspect, mm -hmm. it, it, which is funny. Surrendering to life, life Frankenstein. It's this weird <laughs> story of things that all just kind of makes sense. Yeah. No. You know that I. I really wanted to illustrate where he was in his career. I mean, um, another really incredibly gratifying moment that has come since uh, the book came out is I got a wonderful quote from. Uh, I got a letter from and a quote from Boris Karloff's uh, daughter, Sarah Karloff, who cool. wonderfully is still alive. And she read the book and really enjoyed it. And she wrote, you know, this thing saying that it was a really fun read and great insight into it. Um, and, and she put it at the end. She said, you know, illustrating how Frankenstein made my father an overnight star after 20 years in the film business. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the, the truth of it, that, you know, he had been struggling. He, you know, he had little moments of success and uh, little bits here and there. I think Frankenstein is like his 87th movie that he was in. Gosh. Yeah. But, but, but. Gosh. But this is what I sort of say to people to give you an idea of where he was, though, before Frankenstein. After he shoots Frankenstein, there's a movie that comes out, a big, you know, uh, a regular, you know, Hollywood movie. It was shot before he was he acted in it before Frankenstein came out or I'm sorry, he acted in it before Frankenstein was made. But it came out right after it. And in that his character is called Waiter doesn't even have a name his character doesn't even, you know that just shows you he's he, a nobody yeah he's a bit actor you know still fighting his way in the business and then you know you cut to 
within months you know suddenly like you know he one of his next films is the mummy and when you go when, when you see the promotion for the mummy all you see above the you know above the title is the word karloff it's even bigger <laughs> than the title of the movie so it changed very quickly deservedly so for him if i had made the other movie i'd be like get the editor get someone we gotta we gotta put his name <laughs> we, gotta, yeah. we gotta get some more money yeah. we gotta get some more money out of this um okay so for for the listeners who who are creative Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, what advice would you give to uh, creative writers mm. uh, in in this field? Well, it's it's a cliche, but in my case, it was true. Write what you know. You know, as mm-hmm. I was telling that story, I wrote seven lousy scripts that were frankly just based on other movies I've seen. Then suddenly, I wrote something personal, which was baseball and growing up in a Jewish family in Brooklyn and all of that and everything changed write the story that is unique to you you know there there there's amazing writing that doesn't necessarily have to come for that but i guess finds you know like you were saying you know i didn't grow up in the 30s in the you know working for universal studios but I, as you were bringing out there were aspects of the character that i could relate to particularly right. with junior and you know and all of that or if you're doing research, talk to get other people's, you know, talk to other people about their experiences. You know, I, I, I'm surrounded by a lot of friends who are actors. So that aspect of it also appealed to me. You know, it's, it's a fascinating field, you know, it's very, very tough, but you know, some people do make it and some don't. And, you know, it's interesting watching all of that. Well, write what you know. You know, you know your monsters. You know your universal history. I can, I like this book has to be on everyone's October read. Like it, it. it I mean, it, it goes, it goes hand in hand. Right. You know, light your thunderstorm candles. <laughs> you know, get a get a big pot of coffee. And if you're a horror fan, this 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 has to be on the bookshelf. It's it's such a it's such a fun read. And I feel like now when I'm driving around LA, when I see the Lemley Theaters. I'm going to be thinking of them a little differently. <laughs> that was that was started by uh, one of Carl's brothers, the the Lemley chain, and they're Carl's, great. Yeah, R.I.P. the one in Pasadena. I think yeah. that one, that one closed. Yeah, I know. But I... we got one in Glendale now, so it's yep. a little a little bit closer. So, Julian, thank you so much for coming on. This oh, this was fantastic. My pleasure. Anytime. I love talking about them. It's been great chatting with you. And they can and they can pick up the book Amazon. Uh, Amazon. Your uh, most bookstores should have it. And uh, you can also go to juliandavidstone.com uh, if you want a signed copy of it. Perfect. You can get them there. Um, and also read you know more about me and the and the film uh, or in the book in general. Sounds good. All right. Well, until next time, stay scary. Watch, a bu- read a bunch of horror books. <laughs> I usually end it on the movies, but this time, do a little, put, do a little reading. Read, it's alive. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This has been a blast. Bye-bye.